Shot reverse shot, um, where this week, uh, myself and Ed. Hello, Ed. Hello. Um, we will be talking about prequels, um, and more specifically, uh, the trouble with prequels, um, and you know where they seem to be kind of going wrong and not kind of working, but somehow becoming inexplicably more popular. Um, this was all kind of uh, brought up by the fact that there was a really great piece written on the Dissolve, uh, which is a website which has a lot of great pieces. Uh, on film, uh, this one particular, uh, written by Noel Murray. Um, give us a rundown of, of what Mr. Murray uh, kind of uh, lays out for us, Ed. Well, he was he uh, used it to, uh, as the preface for it was talking about the fact that when he was young, he read The Godfather, the novel by Mario Puzo, and anyone who hasn't read The Godfather, which includes me, um, uh, would not know that The Godfather, the novel, is essentially... Uh, includes a lot of the stuff that would then be put into the film of Godfather Part 2, particularly all the flashback stuff with uh, Vito uh, Corleone uh, growing up and coming to the US. And he was talking about how he always preferred that method of storytelling because it's it's very effective to kind of, within a work of fiction, to have people kind of flashback and talk about stuff that had happened before because it kind of feels like uh, myth-making or like a tall tale and how that is, is very effective. But the, the problem with prequels is that when you make that a separate story, it kind of becomes gap-filling uh, rather than uh, telling a, a particular story. It's essentially playing on what people already know to tell them things that they already kind of know anyway because it's been hinted at before and how that is, uh, to a certain extent, very limiting in terms of effective storytelling. Yeah, it does. It kind of gives you a a set start point that you're reaching with your conclusion of your prequel. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's uh, quite kind of arbitrary, uh, the way that prequels are made. Like, you know, we know things are going to end a certain way and we just kind of go through the motions of seeing them. Um, I think the prequel uh, was kind of uh, reached its kind of zenith uh, with, the, with the Star Wars prequels are um, those we kind of discussed endlessly, but like we, we kind of uh, thought it would be cool to see the backstory um, that uh, kind of leads to the, the Star Wars films that we grew up watching and, and enjoying. Um, but then we saw the prequels and realised it was just uh, fan service and, uh, you know, kind of nod knowing winks and kind of, you know, desperately trying to trade on uh, nostalgia and recognition from the, on, from the previous three films. And there's a lot of films that fall into that trap, isn't there? Yeah, uh, uh, certainly a, a, a recent one that really annoyed me, and there's a there's an argument to be made about whether it is a prequel, is uh, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, which mm. is, you know, the, the argument would be, you know, The Hobbit was written first, so it's not, uh, in terms of the publication, it couldn't be considered a, a prequel to Lord of the Rings, but certainly in terms of the films, because the Lord of the Rings trilogy came first, and The Hobbit is made afterwards, and it reuses a lot of elements of the Lord of the Rings film, certainly in terms of its music, it reuses a lot of the themes, um, mm. and it reuses a lot of the kind of the imagery and uh, things from the original films. But the, the thing that really kind of pushes it into prequel territory and which really emphasises this idea of using the 
audience's pre-existing knowledge to to give your own story perhaps uh, unearned kind of dramatic weight is the moment in Desolation of Smog where Legolas, who isn't in The Hobbit and is just added in because he's a popular character from the original three films, uh, is looking through Gloin's... Uh, possessions and he finds a little picture and he says who's this and he just says that's my lad Gimli and you're just kind of like well that is something that means nothing if you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings films and assumingly you know that they're, they're, if they were work doing this properly they would be making them so that you could watch those films sequentially but that moment is entirely based on kind of the, the irony of uh, people having seen Lord of the Rings films and thinking, ah, they're going to be great friends, but they don't know each other now. And it's kind of... It emphasises the, the way in which prequels at their worst reuse kind of the goodwill towards other films to kind of prop up their weaker elements. Yeah, I mean, you say it means nothing to people who haven't seen uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but like, it actually means nothing full stop. It's just a stupid moment that literally adds adds nothing to any kind of... Uh, narrative, character, or plot. So it's just in there, really, because, well, they could. It's Yeah, it's kind of the equivalent of, in Titanic, the where uh, Billy Zane says, you know, Picasso, he won't amount to anything. It's essentially a joke on the characters, uh, at the expense of the characters, with the audience, and even if it's funny and it works, it still essentially takes the... I, for me, it's something that kind of takes you out of the film when you make those kind of obvious and kind of stupid nods to the mm. to the pre-existing work. There's probably a tendency now, isn't there, for, for films, especially when uh, modern Hollywood kind of blockbusters are built so much around franchises, that when you sequelize something to the point of nausea, then the only real way to do it is kind of prequelize it and kind of go to the origins thing. And we've seen that with... I don't know, something like X-Men would be a good example. We had uh, X-Men, and we had X-Men 2, and then we had X-Men 3, then we had a Wolverine spin-off, then we had Wolverine Origins. Uh, and it was kind of like, uh, how much more are we going to learn about what we kind of already know? Yeah, the real problem with the, the Wolverine prequel was that it was essentially filling in stuff that we already knew from X-Men 2, which was, you mm. know, how he became involved with the... Uh, Weapon X ex, uh, uh, experiment and how he created his rivalry of Sabretooth which actually didn't play a part at all in the, the X-Men films because they had Sabretooth as just as a not, an anonymous baddie in the first one mm. so there's so there's it's not only a prequel that's kind of playing on the images of these three fairly popular films but it also kind of contradicts some of the storytelling in that one which is kind of the uh kind of a failing of a prequel because most pre prequels kind of very dutifully kind of uh, march towards the expected endpoint whereas there mm. they kind of do in some extent to some extent in that they just tell this story that we already know because it's been told once before and also it's you know 50 years of comics history and stuff so it's something that people already know about in in great detail but it, when they kind of tell it again, it feels even more redundant. Uh, and instead of doing what, you know, probably would have made for a decent Wolverine prequel is that you just tell another adventure from his past because he's been mm. around, If because he, he's been alive for, like, hundreds of years. They decide to retell a story that we already know 
uh, in the hopes of like introducing characters that you can then spin off and have their own films. And it just felt really kind of calculated, calculating and pointless. Pointless is probably the word I'd use to describe a lot of uh, prequels. I mean, we've talked before on the show about something like Prometheus, uh, which is a film that is wholly unnecessary um, and is, you know, really just a, a kind of um, really lame excuse for some kind of quite nice visuals and design, but really nothing that adds anything to anything, really. Yeah, it's really pointless as far as a prequel goes. I think it, it's one of those cases where you can clearly see that the original script had nothing to do with Alien. Mm. And it was more about the idea of, you know, humankind, a, a kind of Lovecraftian story of humankind kind of searching for their creators and then discovering horrors beyond imagination. And then they graft on a, a xenomorph at the end. Um, a, a, an idea that has been reinforced by the announcement this week that there won't be any xenomorphs in Prometheus 2 if it happens, which makes the end of Prometheus 1 feel all the more kind of ridiculous and pointless. Mm. Um and that's an instance where you can kind of see that desire to play upon, you know, familiar imagery, all the H.R. Giga design and the creation of the Xenomorph as a way of kind of ensuring that a film that had a kind of an interesting premise would get made, but then the process of grafting on all of that prequely stuff to the interesting premise ends up kind of negating what makes it interesting. Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, this isn't the only type of sequel. Kind of, you kind of said that there's kind of two different distinct types of sequel uh, prequels. Sorry, um, the the ones that are kind of blank filling in there, and then there are other ones that are just kind of seemingly unconnected earlier adventures of. So something like the Temple of Doom, which is obviously the sequel to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in that it came out afterwards, but it's actually set several years before the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in the same universe, you could say something like Young Indiana Jones Chronicles fills a lot of that stuff in as well, in terms of, you know, let's take the character as he was as a young kid, as he was portrayed by River Phoenix, and just kind of extrapolate some fun there. Uh, young Sherlock Holmes is another one, um, a movie that I very much loved as a kid, um, but watched recently. It's, um, it's not very good. Uh, have you seen Young Sherlock Holmes? Uh, I know I've seen the bit where the stained glass window creature comes to life, but I don't think I've seen anything apart from that. Yeah, it's like I'd love that film, right? Because um, it's properly fucked up. Like, there's some really weird kind of Egyptian cult business going on with like poison darts and hallucinations. There's um, Watson gets attacked by like some cakes, like actual cakes attack him. It's brilliant. <laughs> Um, and he gets an eclair, kind of like these these muffins kind of take an eclair like they're battering down the door of a castle and like shove it, shove it in his mouth like it's a battering ram, which is something you have to see, really. Um, but that also, even though it's a kind of, um, uh, it's not a prequel to another series of films, it also does fall into that kind of um, fan service thing because like one of his teachers who turns out to be the villain in, in the piece uh, in in a post-credits sting uh, signs his name on a, on a, uh, a hotel ledger because he's on the lamb after running away from the incident and he just signs it Moriarty and just like uh, okay but like those those they, they seem to be a bit more acceptable those types of uh, earlier adventures of yeah I think they're ones that can that tend to work more as films in their own right I mean Temple of Doom has you know various problems um, in terms of the fact that it's at times a little too dark for what it's trying to be and this uh, there's kind of it's depictions of uh, 
of uh, different races is something that's it's been... Racist, it's racist. It's racist, yeah. Just stop saying it. It's, it's very chilled monkey brains. Yeah. Uh, is, yeah, it's, it's not Spielberg's finest hour. Yeah, it, it's pretty racist, but it does have some great set pieces, and there are there is a lot of stuff to recommend it, but it does feel as, like, a standalone adventure. It works, you know, it's not... Apart from the fact it reuses, like, the Indiana Jones theme... But then you could say, you know, well, that 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 that's kind of putting him in the tradition of him being an American James Bond, which was one of the uh, inspirations for trained, uh, creating it behind creating him. Mm. So you know that that doesn't feel too cheap. It's just the fact, you know, they have this great theme song <laughs> that everyone can hum and is really really memorable. So you might as well reuse it. Apart from that, and the fact he's a pre-established character, it doesn't feel like it's trying to tie in too much to. Uh, to Raiders of the Lost Ark and it, it works as its own separate thing whereas something like uh, you know like the Thing prequel from a few years ago which most people have forgotten about mm. there it's weird because there you can you can clearly see that they're just filling they've taken a property that's very famous and rather than out and out remake the Thing because that's the sort of thing that, that would uh probably backfire on them as far as the fans are concerned they just look at the story that exists and say oh well there's this uh, group of Icelandic uh, scientists that are dead what happened to them and then they make their own not particularly interesting film about these people that you know end up dead and mm. it's kind of uh, a kind of ruthless uh, gap filling there where you're just taking uh, a film that people love and just grafting on an extra story to sell a few more tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's worth noting that not all prequels are bad. No, and no. Um, you've kind of uh, said kind of before we went on that the the best ones are ones that manage to kind of create attention a um, towards what we already know has happened. Yeah, I mean, the the one that immediately leaps, leaps to mind is a film from this year, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yes, Dawn. I, was, I, I get Dawn and Rise mixed up all the time. But Dawn mm. of the Planet of the Apes, you know, um, the the these kind of rebooted Planet of the Apes films are in a weird... Uh, they're kind of weird because they're not, strictly speaking, prequels to Planet of the Apes, the film from 1968, because they are... That film already has its own prequels and sequels. You know, it had a, a kind of dense and uh, mythology that involved people wor- worshipping nuclear bombs and time travel and things like that. But at the same time, uh, everyone knows how Planet of the Apes, what happens in Planet of the Apes, or more or less, you know, humanity loses. I mean, that's that's the end point. That's what we know what those films are going to build towards. So they are films that are designed to take us from a point where humanity is is as we know it now to a point where humanity is enslaved by uh, intelligent apes and in Mm. dawn of the planet of the apes uh it's reached kind of the tipping point where that is that world is about to be realized where the uh the apes are pretty much the uh, are becoming dominant you know there's not many humans left and the entire film it's about the characters fighting the destiny that we know is awaiting them because it's all about the apes and the humans trying to work together and trying not to fight and it's all about the fragility of peace and how difficult it is to uh, 
how difficult it is for sides to work together when there's so much distrust and everything. And it, it's quite a potent metaphor for pretty much any conflict. Um, particularly this year, it kind of feels like it's potent for a lot of the conflicts in sort of the, in the Middle East. And it, it came out around about the time that the tensions between Israel and Palestine kind of flashed up again. So it was hard to watch it and not feel that it had this resonance that perhaps they hadn't intended when it came out. Uh, or when it was being made, but uh, you know the, the the tension in that is that it's a a big blockbuster special effects Hollywood film in which you're thinking I don't want fighting to break out I don't want there to be action I want these these guys to be able to you know make it work and ultimately they can't because that's the story that's being told but you know that's what makes it interesting is that the characters aren't kind of plodding along the set. Uh, path that's been set out for them by the previous films and by this established mythology they are kind of actively fighting it and that's what makes it interesting as a, as a prequel story mm, which is the opposite of what makes the um the star wars prequels interesting i mean if you kill the suspense and you kill the tension um then you're kind of uh you're looking at a dead duck really and like the, the thing is is that the 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 way that the Star Wars prequels go about it is so kind of like, oh, it's this, then it's this, oh, and that's happened. It's like it's so perfunctory. Like mm-hmm. we don't even. It's you almost even once you've seen the the argument is you don't need to see the backstory, right? Who who really needs to see Darth Vader becoming uh, Darth Vader? Like he's he's just this guy who just like chokes people, <laughs> and he just talks in a weird voice. And he's just kind of cool and just a badass. And like, uh, I don't know how many people are clamoring to see how he came about. And then when he came, when you do see how he comes about, you're like, well, I didn't really need to see that. I actually prefer not knowing because it's better to have not seen that. Yeah, the the, the real kind of uh, missed opportunity of of the Anakin Darth Vader storyline is that. Um, unlike Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, there's no kind of sense that he's fighting his journey to the dark side. Mm. Like, he doesn't hit the the scenes of him kind of being seduced by Palpatine and being presented with the possibility of power. There's probably, like, three scenes in the film, in in the entirety of the series, where he is kind of presented with the possibility of becoming evil. And he doesn't really... He never really kind of fights the the, the notion of it. He just kind of thinks you kind of see a tiny bit of turmoil and then pretty much as soon as he's presented with the chance, with the choice, he goes instantly towards the dark side. And it would have been much better if he had kind of, like, if he had actively fought against it. Like, there's a there's a Star Wars uh, Expanded Universe comic. Basically, there's a, it's, it was a comic from the 90s where Luke Skywalker becomes... Uh, be- goes to the dark side and becomes a Sith. And the whole thing about it was that he he didn't want to but the allure was too great and he kind of was kind of uh, he kind of fell into it in, in, in kind of a way that you know someone becomes addicted to uh, to heroin or something you know they kind of t- have a taste of it and then it, it gradually takes over their life whereas there's no sense in any of the Star Wars prequels that uh, Anakin doesn't want to go to the dark side mm. uh, and that kind of falls into that idea of prequels being all about predestination and the good ones they you know the characters fight that and the bad ones they just kind of accept it and it feels like it's just a waste of time yeah i mean if, if you kind of look at kind of drama 101 then the definition of drama is overcoming conflict and in the the star wars prequels um there is no 
conflict to come over, like kind of get over. There's no, yeah, like you say, he doesn't fight. He's turned to the dark side. Anything that like, cause I don't get me wrong, like there could have been some interesting stuff in a Star Wars prequels. Like it's been pointed out several times before by other people that you know in in the original Star Wars, uh, Alec Guinness says, "Oh, me and your dad were like good mates. We were like really good friends." And you think, ah, oh, well, how how like awesome would it be to see those two like as like teenagers like roughhousing around like bars <laughs> and kind of getting into scrapes and like cutting people's hands off and shit. But then you you just have to watch this awful, really awkward relationship between two people who, who act like they don't even like each other and don't even understand why they would like each other. Yeah, yeah, that that is kind of the the, the basic problem with all those films is that they don't really understand understand the inherent drama of what you can do when you do backstory, because backstory doesn't have to be kind of boring and terrible. It can be something that's really illuminating, and the idea of, you know, how did these two guys who were such great friends, how, what, how did they come to the point where they would try to kill each other? And that's an interesting dynamic, and it would be interesting to, to uh, develop it, but because the relationship is, doesn't feel authentic between the two of them, and because Anakin's kind of slide towards the dark side you know if you compare it to something like you know there's there's lots of films that have been made about you know someone who falls in with the gang mm. and they don't realize that the gang's bad until it's too late and you know and, and they have friends on the outside who try and stop them from it and they can't help themselves and that dynamic if you applied it to the star wars films would have made them you know good if you know uh, there had been this tension of like Anakin was slowly succumbing to it and uh, Obi-Wan was trying to keep him out of it but the way that they construct it he kind of succumbs almost instantly when presented with the opportunity and uh, everyone's kind of surprised by it to the extent that most of them end up being killed um, mm. you know so there's no kind of suspense over whether mm. or not he'll do it and there's no suspense over what's going to happen everyone just kind of goes through the motions and then the film ends yeah and and also something that, that we'll move on over the, off the Star Wars prequels in a second, I promise. But um, it can also undo like when you see a, a character and you think, oh, they've got a great must have a great backstory, and you kind of might want to see it. Um, something like the Star Wars prequels actually makes you kind of really sad that they made a backstory. Like for example, the character of Yoda, uh, who we meet in Empire Strikes Back, who's like this little kind of frog thing, and he's like, oh yeah, it doesn't really matter, like if you're small and that because he's like a little fella and he can lift all shit he's got the power of the mind the force which he controls and he's like a master of he's like a jedi master um he can do all kinds of stuff and like he said what well, is the quote he says size matters not mm. i believe um which is his famous line um and also uh, a truism about sex <laughs> um so yeah he knew what he was doing but then in the in the and so we got to get this impression that he's this kind of like you know kind of cool, kind of spiritual kind of guy who would just, you know, can just kind of do things without having to kind of throw down. But then, well, uh, Star Wars Episode 2, he gets a little sword out and he uh, flies around like a fucking monkey, uh, <laughs> like having a laser sword fight with uh, Count Dracula. Uh, and it's like one of the worst things I think I've ever seen committed to, to film or digital. Yeah, digital mainly. Mm. Yeah, that 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 is the other downside. It's either telling people stories that they've already heard in a way that isn't interesting, or revealing things about characters who, you know, when they had a certain bit of a mystique about them, um, were 
kind of compelling and interesting, but then as soon as all, like, you know, they all do with, you know, Boba Fett's backstory. You know, Boba Fett has, like, three scenes in all of the original Star Wars trilogy. He hasn't got, he's got maybe one line, mm. but he looks cool, and so everyone really likes him, so they kind of jam him and his dad into the, uh, into the prequel trilogy, and it just, uh, it just comes across as really kind of half-arsed and really annoying that they kind of put this character in there when it would have been better if he hadn't been included at all and they hadn't kind of gone down that route of trying to uh, jam in just characters that people like mm. at the expense yeah. of actual storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. We need to get off the Star Wars prequels because, you know, I mean, as much as you like giving them a kicking, it's... Uh, it's been done to death. Yes, so, well, uh, it, anyone who's seen the Red Letter Media videos yeah. knows, that, <laughs> knows all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's just fun, though, isn't it? Um, but, you know, let's stop uh, kind of uh, pleasing ourselves. Um, uh, you uh, saw uh, Gotham, didn't you, this week? It's uh, kind of the prequel TV series to the, well, the kind of uh, the Batman universe, I guess. Um, how'd that work out for you, Ed? Uh, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's... It's very interesting in that it tries to be a bridge between about three or four different versions of the Batman character. Um, mm. In its visual style, it, it tries to be both uh, have both the kind of the realism of you know the Nolan films, all kind of making it seem like it's shot in a real city and that it resembles a real place. Uh, I think they do a lot of location shooting in New York and stuff, so they try and give this sense of it as a, as a real physical place but they also have the kind of very pulpy sensibility and the occasional kind of lurid framing that you see in the Tim Burton Batman and also in like the animated series from the 90s mm. so it's it's kind of got all these different tones at once and they don't all kind of mesh but it's still as a um, as a procedural it's really really kind of fun and interesting and it's interesting seeing them kind of introduce these characters that we're familiar with like you know there's a young version of the penguin there's a young version of the riddler although in this he's actually a guy who's like a forensic expert for the gotham police department he's just really he's only had like two lines so far but he's really creepy and makes a really fun impression mm. um and so he's introducing all these characters and you get the feeling they're going to flesh it out as they go along and and what's kind of interesting there is that taking this established world and these established characters and, and the audience's pre-existing knowledge of Gotham City, the idea that, you know, the, the police are really corrupt, the mob owns everyone, and, you know, the idea of Jim Gordon as the one good cop in a completely rotten city, and exploring that through his kind of continued adventures, so... And and kind of toning down on the supervillainy elements at the moment. You get, I imagine at some point it will... Um, really kind of delve into that a lot more when the various characters take on their personas but uh, for the moment it's it's quite interesting seeing how they're navigating being a prequel and having all these preconceptions while they're trying to tell their own story in a way similar to what they did what happened on uh, Smallville when that was mm. on the air um is Gotham how much mileage is there in Gotham is it you know can it run and run and run because there's no set point they're trying to meet um, but like, how much can happen in that universe before we get to the point where we're like, oh, okay, we're kind of ready for Batman now? I, I think there's a lot of potential for them to 
to kind of go for as long as they want, really, but because there's lots of villains in kind of the rogues gallery that they can introduce. At some point, they'll have to introduce the Joker, and that'll be kind of a big thing. The mm. only issue they have is kind of bumping up against uh, the kind of more outlandish elements of those characters and trying to make them... Uh, uh, a, trying to make them... Uh, interesting and kind of fit within their world because they've already established that this is essentially uh, reality so you're not going to get like Killer Croc or Solomon Grundy showing up you know they're not going to get these characters that are supernatural but uh, you know trying to make those characters work uh, there's potential interest there but also the danger that at a certain point it just becomes a kind of a standard procedural show that happens to have characters from Batman comics in which I think is probably the more likely outcome as it ends up like that. But it could still, you could still kind of run and run and run, and eventually, you know, Bruce Wayne puts on his cape and then the series ends. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's the natural point, isn't it? Um, uh, TV is uh, having a bit of a kind of prequel uh, uh, kind of thing, I guess. Uh, well, it isn't, I'm just trying to say. Hannibal's all right, isn't it? Yeah, Hannibal's great. <laughs> yeah, no, Hannibal as a prequel is is fantastic because there, it obviously trades on some of the imagery of the established films and the 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 four Hannibal books. Mm. Uh, there's a scene at the end of the first season where they very explicitly recreate the sequence of uh, uh, Clarice Starling going into the. Uh, san- the the prison or the asylum to see Hannibal Lecter, um, mm-hmm. and they have actually they recreate that scene twice. One one of them involving Eddie Izzard, which is uh, quite amusing because mm-hmm. he's doing a very hammy uh, Anthony Hopkins impression throughout. <laughs> um, that, that doesn't sound like Eddie Izzard. No, um, but uh, so they they have all, and also there's a there was a, a moment in the second season where they recreated a particular scene from Manhunter, the uh, Michael Mann film. So they have all these images to draw on, but they also enjoy playing within kind of the sandbox that Thomas Harris created and that all of these writers and directors over, you know, 20 years or so have created, or, you know, taking images that they like and particular characters and then kind of mixing up in their own way. So even though they are building towards certain points that they say that Francis Dollarhide, who's the villain from Red Dragon, is going to be in it at some point and uh, they are going to do Science of the Lambs and, you know, Hannibal at some point has to be caught probably in the forthcoming third season. Uh, They don't kind of feel like they're, uh, you know, kind of going towards that and uh, in a kind of a a begrudging way. They kind of feel like they're getting there in their own way that feels natural and most importantly feels fun. You know, it's a really fun, pulpy, uh, ridiculously violent and gory show. Uh, And it feels like its own creation. It doesn't feel like, you know, they just had these um, characters that everyone knows and this license, and then they just said, okay, we'll just retell the story that everyone knows from all these various books. Yeah, and this is is a universe and the character that has been quite... Uh, extensively explored and also prequelized. Mm. Um, where does Hannibal succeed? Where something like Red Dragon fails? Uh, uh, where it succeeds, certainly in terms of um, something like Hannibal Rising, in particular. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, Hannibal Rising, which is the the absolute nadir of the the the, the cinematic Hannibal Lecters 
oh, Hannibal's Lecter. I don't know how the, mm. the plural is. Um, yeah. mm. It's uh, the, the difference is that it doesn't try to explain Hannibal. It doesn't try and explain who he is or why he does the things that he do. It does, while as whereas you know Hannibal Rising, uh, it goes out of its way to explain. Oh, Hannibal is the way that he is because Nazis murdered and cannibalized his sister and forced him to eat parts of her, um, mm. and kind of goes too far in the direction of trying to make him into an anti-hero. Because um, right. you kind of go, you know, oh, sure, he, like, murders people and eats them and feeds them to his guests at dinner parties, but all these horrible things happen to him, whereas Hannibal, the series, doesn't try to explain him, just takes the fact that he exists and then makes him incredibly charismatic because he's played by Mad Mickelson, who has this kind of dark allure to him. You know, he's just someone who looks really great in the suit and has just this great kind of charm to him. And that forces the audience to, into a very um, a very uncomfortable place where you have to watch it and you're like, I know he's evil, I know he's technically the villain, mm. but I also kind of don't want him to get caught because <laughs> he's a really fun character to be around. And I think that that is, the, that is where it succeeds, where a lot of... Where, where Hannibal Rising certainly fails and where a lot of other sequels fail in that it's telling its own stories and it is putting you in a situation that uh, you've never been in in terms of the Hannibal kind of story. You've never seen the story of how Will Graham caught Hannibal Lecter. You've never got a sense of what their relationship is from the films. And so by exploring it in its own way, it does something that's genuinely unique within kind of uh, literature that, as you say, has been kind of done to death. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Hannibal is a example of where the prequel can work. Um, and you know, we're not kind of, uh, saying it could never work. Is there any, is there any prequels you would really like to see it? Oh, that's a, that's a very like, good question. Like, like kind of like, you know, dream prequels, is there any kind of universe you want to see prequelized? Um, I'm not sure, really. There, do you have any examples that kind of come to mind for you? No, uh, I don't know. Uh, young Sam Spade, <laughs> the college, Sam Spade, the college years. Um, like, I, actually, like, uh, I don't think it would be that terrible an idea. I'd like to spend a bit more time with. I mean, it could never happen because all the people involved are dead. Um, but like, uh, uh, kind of um, Rick from Casablanca's backstory. Mm. Um, I think he had a lot of kind of interesting stuff. Uh, but I wouldn't want to just see it go through the motions and, you know, follow him and that last in Paris and all that stuff. I want to see him kind of like, you know, carousing uh, his way around and uh, kind of World War II. That'd uh, be pretty interesting. Um, but, yeah, I can't really think of too many others. I mean, there are a lot There are a lot of, like, things you could use to, you know, explore bigger worlds. And I think a lot of those new Star Wars, like, standalone films, they've got to be prequels, haven't they? Or origin stories. Yeah. And Boba Fett's getting his own story. Yeah, that's the rumour, isn't it? That it's going to be a Boba Fett one, yeah. I think that certainly something like that that's very expansive and has this huge universe where you could tell lots of, like, hundreds of different stories if you wanted to, instead of focusing on the travails of the Skywalker family, mm. which I think is the main thing that kind of hurt the prequels is it kind of felt like it, it, it was kind of hemmed in by having to tell that particular family story when mm. you have a whole universe in which, you know, there's 
so many people whose stories you could focus on. Um, and I think that the standalones would benefit if they could actually just focus on story on characters that aren't kind of directly tied into the action and can just do their own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be back on Star Wars again. Yeah, it's uh, hard yeah. to avoid it with this come, know, with this yeah. topic. Um, yeah, I think we probably should like just like quit while we're ahead and before we kind of get into kind of wanting to hold Jake Lloyd down and like kind of knee his face and sort of kind of bloody pulp. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's another episode. <laughs> I could just do that, you know, for two hours. Um, so yeah, prequels. Uh, just be careful out there, all right? Because there's a lot of bad stuff around, but there's some good stuff there as well. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, if you've enjoyed this show, then by all means, subscribe to us uh, on iTunes or you can listen to us on Stitcher Smart Radio now, um, which is great. Uh, find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, write us a review if you like the show and uh, give us um, um, reviews of uh, uh, kind of star ratings, four and above, four or five. We'll accept those. There are only threes. They look scruffy. Um, so yeah uh, until next time it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me <laughs>